Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 couple new postings. Here's an interesting sort of small one, I guess, from the world of politics. Uh, the the Wisconsin Democrats had their convention, their state convention over the weekend. It was in La Crosse. I, um, interestingly, only 160 delegates attended, 588 guests. That seems to me kind of small attendance, given the fact that people are supposed to be so passionate in election year. But they, they do a straw poll. Now, straw polls at conventions of political activists are probably – they are probably about as meaningless as anything there is. But it is kind of interesting to me. So you've got the, you've got the people at Straw Poll, and they ask, who are, who do you favor in, for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate to take on Ron Johnson? And the first, uh, Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, he narrowly wins. He's favored by 121 of these activists, um, say they favor him. That's 32.4%. Um, second is Sarah Godlewski, the state treasurer. She was favored by 119, 31.9%. So essentially, Barnes and Godlewski tie. The interesting thing to me is that Alex Lasry, who has by far and away spent much, much, much more money on his campaign, at least so far, than any of the other candidates have, he comes in a, a distant third with 58 votes, which is 15.5%. And then you have the out-of-game executive, uh, Tom Nelson, who is fourth with 35 votes. But to me, again, the interesting takeaway of this, just like the Marquette University Law School poll that came out last week, that showed it a very, very close race between any of the Democratic challengers and Ron Johnson. But in the head-to-head, Lazary was the only one who was losing. Now, they're, they're all in the in the margin of error. So the, the U.S. Senate race is very much a toss-up. But it is interesting to me that despite spending millions and millions and millions of dollars already on the campaign, the, the Lazary campaign doesn't appear to be catching fire with Democratic Party activists, and it doesn't appear to be catching fire with even the general Democrat primary voters. Now, who, who knows what's going to happen over the course of the next couple months, because the primary's not until early August. But it does appear to indicate that maybe money isn't everything. If you want to link to that story, you can check it out. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. All right. The Supreme Court has, of course, been in the news in a big way over the course of the last couple days, came out with a ruling today on religious freedom. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I want to start out with the fallout from the Supreme Court's decision on Friday, striking down Roe versus Wade. And all over the weekend, all through the weekend, we, we've heard, well, some people are just celebrating. Other people are saying it is the end of the world as we know it. I want to talk to you about where we go next in Wisconsin. And I want to offer my suggestion and then allow you to react to this. First of all, let's review the bidding a little bit. And I said this on Friday. 
I remember I remember my first year in law school studying in constitutional law class, studying Roe versus Wade. And it occurred to me then, and I've believed this all the years since then, that regardless of how you feel about abortion, from a legal perspective, Roe versus Wade was a mess. It was just a mess. It was a result-oriented decision, which kind of created this right to privacy and said, well, you know, women have the right to do what they want with their bodies up to a certain point. And then it created these kind of arbitrary distinctions, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, which it was more like the court acting like a legislator instead of the court acting like, is there is there a right? The problem with Roe versus Wade also throughout the years has been with this whole right to, to privacy. If you have a right to do what you want with your own body, okay, but then what right does the government have to limit it? What about if you want to inject heroin? Should you be able to do that? Why isn't that your right to privacy? What if you want to kill yourself? Well, you know, should you have an absolute right to do that? And should people who help you, how, how could they be held liable? And it's caused conservative and liberal judges, justices, to kind of turn backflips to figure out how to justify this. And like I say, I've always believed Roe versus Wade is a mess. I think it was a result-oriented thing. Members of the Supreme Court at the time wanted to allow abortions, and so they wanted to create this framework that really didn't come from the Constitution. It It's a matter of of law, and it's a matter for the legislatures, at least in my opinion, to decide. Now, the problem we have with this is that the issue, the people on the extremes tend to be the most passionate. On the pro-life side, you have a certain segment of that community who believes that life starts at conception, and the woman has no rights at all with regard to you know, terminating a, a pregnancy. So that's why you, even in cases of like rape and incest, you have no rights at all, um, even though essentially saying, okay, you, you, you have no control over your own body at all. On the flip side, there are people on the other extreme, on the left, that believes that that right is absolute. Kind of like the, the Russ Feingolds of the world who think that you should have an abortion anytime up till the time the baby is, is actually being born. Well, I think most people view that as extreme. And then there's all the issues about, you know, what what sort of restrictions can you put on? There are some, a lot of the the heavy pro-abortion crowd, who believe there should be no restrictions. It's completely up to the the woman um, and including minor women. If you're 13, I think most people, for example, feel that if you're 13 years old, you you shouldn't be able to just go get an abortion without your, your parents having to sign off on that. But yet there's some people who think there should be no restrictions at all. So where we are in Wisconsin right now is you have an 1849 law, which essentially makes it illegal to provide to do abortions. Tony Evers says, well, I'm, I'm going to offer clemency to any doctor who does it. I, I If I were advising any abortion doctor, I would say that's nice of the governor to say, but I wouldn't necessarily take that to the bank as a guarantee. So, I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, you have abortions suspended for other than a medical emergency in the state of Wisconsin at the moment. Now, the question becomes, is it good public policy? Where do we go from here? Do we 
do we essentially create an island in Wisconsin where there, there, there's no abortions and everybody except for medical emergencies and people have to you know travel to other states? All right. At the same time, the flip side is if you create a, a right to abortion under the statute, does it have to be absolute or is there, in fact, a middle ground which is out there? And I, I've I've been arguing for this for about 25 years and I understand what I say doesn't make anybody happy because people, again, the, the hardcore you know, pro-life people think there should be no restrictions at all. The hardcore pro-abortion people think that um, think that, that there should be absolutely no restrictions. Anything goes. The hardcore pro-life people think that under no way, shape or form should we allow abortions. I think there needs to be a, a middle ground, especially given the fact that that you have other states like Minnesota and Illinois and Michigan, which, which allow uh, abortions. So the question is, do, do you want to make Wisconsin, is it right to make Wisconsin women have to travel to Illinois or to Minnesota to have a procedure which is going to be legal there? To me, there is a common sense middle ground. I'm not sure Republican leadership in the Assembly and the Senate will go along with it. And based on what he said, I doubt Tony Evers will go along with it. Tony Evers is saying, I, I'm not looking at anything that would be more restrictive than what we had. So both sides appear to be dug in somewhat on the fringes. Well, that, that's where I come in. I have always believed that this is a balancing act. 94% of abortions, terminations of pregnancy, are done within the first 14 or 15 weeks. That's the vast majority of abortions. I would think that the reasonable middle ground is what you find in a number of these state laws, whether it's Florida that has it at 15 weeks for elective abortions, and then after that, you know, again, for medical emergencies, or Mississippi for 14 weeks, or a couple of the other states, whether it's 14 or 15 or 16 weeks. I, I I don't know what that magic number is. But it seems to me that's where the majority of people are in the state of Wisconsin. People support abortion, but not unlimited abortion. And I understand it's a difficult concept and a difficult conversation because how you feel about this in many respects impacts on your personal your personal life experience and your religious background and, and things like that. But to me, the, the compromise position is a law in Wisconsin which would permit elective abortions up to a certain point. And again, I I don't know if that's 12 weeks or 14 weeks or 15 weeks or 16 weeks, but sometime in that time frame, that's when you can have elective abortions. After that, uh, medical emergencies. And therefore, you kind of balance out the the different interests. You say that, okay, the, the, the baby has an interest, at some point in time, the mother has an interest at some point in time, and society has an interest at some point in time. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question. Let, let's let's forget the, like the, the, the rhetoric on both sides. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is great. And, and let's talk about what we should be doing in Wisconsin. Where should we go? Eight months from now, what should the law in Wisconsin be? Unlimited, anything goes, wild, wild west when it comes to terminating pregnancies, no no ability to terminate pregnancies at all, or th- this kind of middle ground which you have in many of the states. 855-616-1620.
What do you think? I am trying to be the voice of of common sense in, in this discussion today. See, part of the problem, and this applies to both the left and the right, is a, a lot of these groups, they, they get their funding and their support from their, their most rabid followers, which is why you have some people on, on the right um, who and, and some of the groups who just refuse to say, okay, we can, we can have any exceptions to allowing abortion, because to do that would be seen as intellectual weakness. And the same thing is true on the left. If you talk about like what I consider to be common sense, mainstream sort of limitations on the right to abortion, well, they oppose it. Well, there shouldn't be any restrictions at all, because that's where they get their money. The truth is, I firmly believe this, that the vast majority of Wisconsinites, just like the vast majority of people in this country, are, are sort of striving for a a middle ground. And rather than pontificating on both sides of the issue, the Republicans in the legislature and the governor, the governor's position has been no restrictions at all, nothing other than what we had. And some of the Republicans have been, well, we can't even have exceptions for rape or, or incest, which I understand intellectually where that comes from. Life starts at conception. But that's I don't I think for most of us, the idea of saying and and, uh, rape and incest is less is about one percent of all the abortions that are done. So we're talking about a very, very small percentage here. But I think people hear that and they say, well, that that's traumatizing the victim. I as I said earlier, I think there is a middle ground here. And that middle ground is what you found in this in a number of different states where you say up to a certain point. Elective abortions are okay. Beyond a certain point, boom, you, you just move to, you know, a medical emergency. And I think that's where Wisconsin needs to figure out a way to get. Otherwise, we are sort of an island around these other states. And it makes no sense to me to say to women who, okay, that, all right, you can get an abortion, but you've got to travel to Illinois, or you've got to travel to Michigan, or you've got to travel to Minnesota to do it. And that's not to say that I think that means it's Katie bar the door, and you should be able to have an abortion seven months into a pregnancy as an elective abortion. To me, there is this common sense middle ground, and you need politicians from both sides of the aisle to work for that. Eight. Uh, five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, I'm a middle-aged Christian conservative. I'm in complete agreement for compromise. Unfortunately, our Wisconsin government will not be able to come to that middle ground. Jeff, middle ground would be nice, but in Wisconsin, our government parties will not talk to each other. Jeff, every human is a person. How can there be any compromise um, when it would be okay to effectively end someone else's life? Why not focus on making adoption much more easier and much more affordable? See, and again, that I understand there are some people that, that share that view, but at the same time, that takes the, the woman completely out of the equation. And I think you have to find a balance of this. Um, Jeff, I was raised Catholic and I have a daughter. And if I have a daughter and gets pregnant um, for unfortunately a situation, how do I end up reacting? I think it's a tough opinion and it has to be based on your own precepts. Um, Yes, Jeff, I am not a doctor, so I don't know the magic number, but that number should be at the point in time when the fetus is viable to be born and not able to survive and become a normal, healthy person. Well, viability, again, it depends on how you define it, and that, that definition has changed over over the years. Is it is it four months? Is it five months? Once you start getting past that, I, I think 
there's a lot of people that become, myself included, very uncomfortable with the idea of terminating a prey. I mean, I, I think, again, I think you should have a choice up to a certain point. I don't think it's unreasonable, though, to say, hey, you've got 14 or 15 or, or 16 weeks to make that decision. And after that, we're, we're talking about medical emergencies. I think you're spot on, Jeff. Wisconsin should adopt some law on common sense abortion, 15 weeks voluntary, medical reasoning after that point. I really don't see the issue with any of that. Um, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. What a beautiful day it is. It is. What do you think? Hey, I uh, just wanted to say, I yeah, uh, well, this time I don't agree with you for once. Uh, I think that your your middle ground basically eliminates pro-life, and you're finding middle ground for pro-choice, but you're taking pro-life out of the equation. Uh, pro-life says it's a life, mm-hmm. save it, and pro-choice says we want to be able to choose, and if uh, 14, 15, 20 weeks, whatever you come up with, you're basically getting a middle ground for the pro-choice people, not, and you're taking pro-life out of the equation. Well, no, I mean, you're, you're saying, you are saying abortions are permissible under certain circumstances, but you're saying beyond a certain point, whatever that point would be, 14 weeks, 15 weeks, or whatever, at, at that point, we agree that it, it's a, a baby, and we agree that the rights of that baby then outweigh the rights of the mother to terminate that pregnancy. I, I mean, I guess otherwise you say that the, the mom has no rights at all. And by the way, I understand intellectually the argument that life starts at conception, but I, I think that then says women have no choice at all over their own bodies. And I just, I just don't think that's where this, this country is. Okay, I don't want to go down this road. Right. Uh, that's a, that sounds like another discussion, but isn't the choice made upon conception? Well, by the say, um, thanks. I, I mean, mean, I guess there's birth control and blah blah blah. But well, yeah, I, but uh, I'm just saying, I'm just thinking. Go I, ahead. No, thanks. Look, I, I understand the intellectual argument, and I do. There, there are people who, because of their religious backgrounds or, or whatever, believe that, that the moment you have that egg that is fertilized, that then becomes a, a living being. All right? And, and I understand, and I, I, I respect that particular argument. At the same time, there are others who feel very passionately that, that no, it, it's, it's not a baby until it's born. And it's not a human being until it comes out of the mother's birth canal and, you know, takes its first breath. And, and I think both of those positions, I respect the people that have them, but I, I don't think that reflects the reality. And I guess what I'm looking for is a compromise between the, the two where we can say, all right, we're, we're going to protect unborn life, but yet we're still going to recognize that mothers have a certain right up to a point. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Um, Sharon, Sharon, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes. Hi. hi. Uh, a comment on the Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, no one can argue with the fact that when a life ends, the person takes a breath, takes his last breath, his or her last breath. Correct. 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 Scientifically, if we look at this scientifically, so. Uh, uh, 
an embryo at conception is not able to take a breath. So according to science, that embryo becomes a human when it's able to take its first breath. There is no life unless we breathe. Uh, so so your argument would be, so your if I understand, so your argument would be abortion is okay up until the moment the child is born and takes its first breath. No, no. That child can be born at 26 weeks. I've seen them at 26 weeks, but they're on a respirator. And 26 weeks is way past what most states are yep. um, acknowledging that an abortion is legal. So until that child is able to take its first breath and live, that's when it becomes viable. Then how do you square that with other, Sharon, how do you square that with other laws? For example, in Wisconsin, we have a criminal statute which punishes people um, for harming an unborn child. That That's the language. So for example, if your girlfriend, if, if someone's girlfriend was, was pregnant and you gave them without their knowledge an abortion drug that caused the unborn child to die, you would be guilty of a felony. And we, we treat an unborn child, I'm looking at the statute now, as any individual of the human species from fertilization until birth that is gestating inside a woman. So we don't say you have to be able to survive outside the womb. We say for criminal purposes, um, you, you, you injure a fetus or whatever, you're, you're punished. You're looking at this legally. Look at it scientifically, Jeff. Well, so you don't think we should you, have you criminal? It's well, not wait. A viable, it's so, not okay. a viable fetus. So would you then... It's not viable. Uh, would you object? Do you think we shouldn't punish people for... Uh, again, that's my, my example. Somebody slips the woman the, uh, an, an abortion-inducing drug with the intent of killing the unborn child. You don't think they should be punished for that? Not if it's the day after pill, no. Well, No, if the woman's aware... But what if the she's not? Because that's what, embryo... What if, what if? Okay. Well, thanks. I'm sorry. I, we're just going to disagree. I'm. I guess. I, and I appreciate that. We. I, I. I. At some point in time, if you're telling me that you don't think that there, you should think it should be the wild, wild west, and you know, no restrictions until, gosh, six, seven months into the pregnancy. I'm sorry. I, I don't agree with you, and I think most people would. I'm. I'm trying to find a sort of middle ground and i understand it's again and i respect this there's people on the other side who say the moment of conception that's when it becomes a life i was just pointing out that from a criminal statute in wisconsin we we do define unborn child and and we give an unborn child is is well they say an individual of the human species from fertilization until birth so from a criminal perspective a criminal law perspective we protect that unborn child from not from when they can breathe we protect them from the the moment of fertilization 855-616-1620 which again points out the difficulty in trying to set lines i and i i understand that i wrestle with it part of the other thing that i look at is i'm I'm trying to come up with some practical solutions to all this because right now wisconsin is an island when it comes to preventing abortions it's not like women in wisconsin can't have abortions anymore it's that women in wisconsin who want an abortion would have to travel to illinois or travel to minnesota or travel to michigan or travel wherever to do it and that 
makes no sense to me either. I think we need to come up with some sort of standards, which isn't to say anything goes. I'm trying to be practical about this, and I understand the people who feel very, very strongly on both sides of this issue with the intellectual argument about when does life start and when does life terminate. Let's talk to Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about this? Well, you know, I, I really do agree with you that there has to be a middle ground because you cannot force a someone or a woman to carry a child um, that they may not feel that they're able to take care of or they have mental issues or physical issues to, to force someone to carry a child, even if you say, okay, it can be put up for adoption. You know, for nine months, you are going to be, you know, tied to this child. And it's just, it's, it's just, you can't force someone to do that. And also, especially if you don't want to, to um, uh, you know, uh, carry this child, you may not be taking care of yourself as, as you should. And then we're going to have more health issues. What do you, you know, who's mm-hmm. going to adopt? Where are they going to go? Are we going to have to get orphanages? Are we going to have to do this and that? But to force someone to do something with their body and house something that they may not want, there has to be a cutoff point where you, you a jumping off point where yeah. there's a choice. And then, okay, then if you don't, if you don't make, take that choice, then you have to commit. But to, to force someone to house something for nine months, and if you're if you're not in in the ball game, then right, and you and, know, and, and it leads happen? to all those things about like the back alley abortions and all that sort of stuff that exactly. that we were trying to move away from. So. You, and again, from, right? And, and again, I, I keep going back to the fact that it's not like abortion is illegal in this country. If 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 a, a woman is pregnant today and wants to get an abortion, well, you know, if you have the means, and I appreciate that that's a restriction. You know, you get to, you go to Illinois or you go to Minnesota or or, or wherever. So it's not like we've it's right. not like we've eliminated abortion. We've just made it more inconvenient for people or maybe put it out of the reach of women who don't have the means to, to go elsewhere and exactly. and people who right financially may not be able to get the money to you know get the vehicle or whatever to get there you know people who are financially stable are able to do that but then there's other people who are, may wait till the last possible and it's going to happen i mean that's what i'm so surprised that people aren't talking about it will happen if if women don't want to you know carry this child to term they will do whatever they can just like they did you know in the in what the 40s or 50s and you know the back alley issues and stuff like that they will terminate that pregnancy and it will just that's the way it's going to be. And, and Chris, you know, and again, I kind of look at, at the numbers. Nine, I, the most recent numbers I saw were that 94% of, of abortions, rape, incest, medical issues, elective, 94% are performed within the first 14 weeks. So if, and again, maybe the magic number is 15, maybe it's 16, I, I don't know, whatever whatever you decide on, Michigan, uh, Mississippi said 14, Florida says 15, but that that's going to cover the vast majority of, of the situations. And again, it gives the states some right to say that there is, is a limit. I guess, I just, and again, I appreciate the people who feel very strongly on, on both 
sides of this issue based on intellectual right. arguments, religious arguments. But I, I think there has to be a middle ground, and we have to have some profiles and right. courage moments to find that middle ground and then move on. Right, and also no one else is thinking about whipping out the checkbook who's thinking about, you know, that they, you know, don't don't support um, abortion rights. Okay, are they are they going to pay for the kids' child fund or you know the college fund or or the extra money that the mother may need if the kid is not healthy? I mean, okay, it's great to have that opinion, but who's paying for it? Well, well, right, and, and going back to where you started the conversation, which I is that right. in it, when you have if you have a woman who finds out that that she is pregnant from it's a one night stand or whatever it is and just doesn't right. feel for whatever reason she's and it's not rape it's not incest but it's a one night stand right. or she does not feel that she wants to carry that baby to term i think it's unrealistic to say to her well we expect you to do all the things that you know you you would do if you're hey i just found out you know we're pregnant that's great it's just it's not going to happen right, in the exactly. real world yeah uh thanks so well you and i we we <laughs> thanks for calling and again i i, I just See, I, I see all these protests, and I see all the screaming, and I see all the all the stuff that's going on, and I understand people feel passionately about this. I, I remember, I, I remember when Roe versus Wade came out, and I know the debate over the last several decades, and I understand, and I appreciate the passion on on both sides, and I appreciate the intellectual arguments. At the same time, I, I do believe that there there is a middle ground where the vast majority of people are. And it's it's again, it's in elective abortions. okay up until a certain point. And beyond that, we we believe that whether you want to talk about it as a fetus or an unborn child or whatever, beyond a a certain point, it's a human life. And the life of that unborn baby outweighs the decisions made by the mother. And and that's really that's really kind of the balancing. That's one of my big beefs with Roe versus Wade. The justices made that decision up to a certain point, first trimester, second trimester, or whatever, we think the rights of the mother outweigh the rights of the unborn baby. After that, the rights of the unborn baby outweigh the rights of the mother. That to me it was that's never been in the Constitution. That's always been my problem with Roe versus Wade. It's to me a decision that legislatures should make. And I understand that Many of you aren't happy to hear that. It's just, it's the way I've always seen it, and it's the way I, I see it today. Can you get a compromise? Is it possible for the Republican legislature to reach a compromise with the Democrat governor on this? I I, I, I don't know. I, I hope so, because I don't think we in Wisconsin should be an island where other states around us allow this particular procedure. I think we have to find that middle ground. It's not going to make some people happy, but I think it's where the vast majority of Wisconsinites are. It's interesting. A number of our texters, and, and by the way, the calls, and I, I'm getting flooded with texts on this, and I, I, do, I really do appreciate, unlike maybe for the first day this decision came out. It's a respectful tone because I think what we have to do is we have to figure out where we go moving forward from this. And do we do nothing? 
do we you know implement like the, the Goldilocks rule kind of a not too hot not too cold rule that that allows elective abortions up to a certain point I, we have to make those decisions and a number of people are texting me and saying well you know here, here here's the problem if you know people behave irresponsibly you know that's they, they should accept the, the consequences well I, I mean look I understand in, in a perfect world you don't have 13-year-old girls climbing into the backseat of cars with their 14-year-old boyfriends and having unprotected sex. I, I understand that. In a perfect world, you have all the guys are wearing condoms. if They don't intend to get their girlfriends, spouses, significant others pregnant, and all the women are on you know birth control if they're deciding to have sex. But we don't live in a in a perfect world. That's that's just not the reality of of what we're dealing with. So we're having to deal with. Um, you know, a, in, in cases where it is the casual relationship and the, you know, the, the are quote unquote bad choices, if you want to say that, you know, to have unprotected sex and that type of stuff. It's, it's the, the consequences that come from that. And I mean, I really am struck by our last caller, or second last caller, Chris, who was making the point about, you know, for, for a woman who does not want to have that child for whatever reasons, you know, it's fine to be judgmental and say, well, you should have done this or you should have done that, but it doesn't change the reality that, that she's, she's pregnant. She does not want that baby. How do you expect her? to what, what do you expect her to do for the, those next nine months you, you have to have some sort of balancing you know i i didn't agree with hillary clinton ab- about much but I, I do think you know when she talked about making abortion rare and safe that was that was ultimately i think a, a desirable sort of goal and that's kind of the middle ground that i'm i'm talking about not the Gee, you know, you want to have an elective abortion, uh, elective abortion six or seven months in? Sorry, no. But at the same time, though, those situations where you have the mother that doesn't want to be a mother, and this was a product of a mistake or a bad choice or whatever you want to say, we have to figure out what that common sense middle ground is. And for people who don't want to do it, okay. But then, you know, ask yourself a question, what are you really accomplishing? Because it's not like abortion is outlawed in this country. Like I say, in Wisconsin, all you're doing is saying to people, you got to go to Illinois, or you got to go to Minnesota. And, and th- does that make any sense? So it's a difficult situation. And it, it's, it's a conversation that grownups have to have. And I'm hoping we can have that grown up conversation over the course of the next several months and, and figure out what the law needs to be. Now, speaking of that, Billy Joe Armstrong. Can I see a show of hands? Who knows who Billy Joe Armstrong is? My producer does. Okay, that's the only hand that's going up. Billy Joe Armstrong is the lead singer for the band Green Day. So Billy Joe Armstrong, he's in London on Friday giving a concert with the band. He says, I'm renouncing my citizenship. I'm coming here. There's just too much stupid in the world to go back to that miserable excuse for a country. He's referring to the United States. Oh, I'm not kidding. You're going to get a lot of me in the coming days. And then he goes on and he he says a bunch of things with language that I cannot say on the radio or else I'd get in a lot of trouble and we'd have problems with our license. I have a link to the story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. So Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day says he's renouncing his U.S. citizenship over the decision to strike down Roe versus Wade. My comment on this 
Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Here's the interesting question, though. What are the odds that he will follow through? I mean, how many times over the course of the last, like, two decades have we heard, if this thing happens, if George Bush gets reelected, I'm moving to Canada and renouncing my citizenship? Well, most or all those celebrities are still here. If Donald Trump wins the election, I'm moving to Canada and renouncing my citizenship, and they're still here. So I will be waiting for Billy Joe Armstrong, lead singer from Green Day. I'll be waiting for him to move to the United Kingdom, get ready to pay his 90% in taxes like they charge, and happily live out the rest of his days as a British citizen. We'll see how he likes it. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Mr. Armstrong. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, so a lot of people reacting to my last comment. Green Day, which is a band. Billy Joe Armstrong is the lead singer of the band. He's in England over the weekend. He announces that he's... He's renouncing his U.S. citizenship because of the the Roe decision. Okay, that's what's caused him to do it. I'm renouncing my citizenship. I'm coming here. There's just too much stupid in the world to go back to that miserable excuse for a country. Oh, I'm not kidding. You're going to get a lot of me in coming days, to which I, I think, you know, a lot of people would say, fine, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And again, if you... You know, it, it's interesting that you become rich and famous based on this country, but, you know, you want to bail, that's fine. A lot of people are saying, okay, what is this Green Day and who is this guy? What's their most famous song, Charlie, here? Can we play it? Okay, so that's it. He, he says he's leaving. All right, can, can we have a show of hands if he does, in fact, leave? And, of course, these, these celebrities always say that they're leaving. But if, if we do have a show, can I see a show of hands? Okay, is this any really any huge loss if he decides to bail? I, I just, I put that out there as a question. But Billy Joe Armstrong says he's he's heading out. Also, least surprising Roe versus Wade story of the day, John Chisholm, the district attorney in Milwaukee, says, okay, he won't prosecute abortion cases. So if there were doctors in Milwaukee County who continue to perform abortions, arguably in violation of the law, he, he won't prosecute them. Tony Evers says he's also going to, he would give doctors clemency. If I were advising any of those doctors, I'd say, well, that's well and good, but I, I still... For a whole re- a whole list of, of reasons, I, I still, until the law is worked out, I, I wouldn't be doing abortions. That would be my advice. But John Chisholm says he won't prosecute abortion cases. Sent out a tweet about this over the weekend. Given that John Chisholm rarely prosecutes many type of cases, think car theft, fleeing police, shoplifting, vandalism, the fact that he won't prosecute people for performing abortions is the least surprising story of the day. Got a link to that story if you follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner's. 620 on Twitter. All right. The Supreme Court, which is still rolling out, they've got, I think, about six or seven decisions left to roll out. They will probably all come out this week, I would guess. But they issued a decision today, which is, I think, a very significant case in the question of church versus state, which is, by the way, a phrase that doesn't appear. A separation of church and state is a court 
created doctrine. It doesn't appear in the Bill of Rights. It doesn't appear in the Constitution. And it's something that, that courts have been wrestling with for for decades. The, the idea of can religion play any sort of role in, in public life at all? The Establishment Clause of the Constitution says government shall do nothing to prevent the establishment of, of a religion, meaning that, that government... We, we don't want a state-run religion. That's what people fled, you know, England from. You know, we don't want that state religion. We want people to be able to worship as we choose. That, over the years, the Establishment Clause has been interpreted as, okay, we need a, a complete line between church and state and and things that they can never cross. Well, that's that's kind of a difficult decision. So here's the story. And, and we've talked about this in, in different contexts before. It, it's the case is Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Here's the, the deal. Matter of fact, I took the liberty of printing the entire, you know, decision today. And I had an opportunity to read through it a, a little bit. Here's the deal. Um, the guy's name was Joseph Kennedy, began working at as a football coach at Bremerton High School in 2008. Um, after nearly two decades of service in the Marines. Okay, um, he, like many football players and coaches across the country, he made it a practice to give thanks through prayer on the playing field at the conclusion of each game. Now, this morphed over the years, but let me kind of give you a a summary of what would happen. Uh, Originally, what he would do is... Along with like lots of what lots of other football coaches used to do, they'd have like an organized team prayer. Courts say, okay, you can't have an organized team prayer. Sometimes in his motivational talks to the kids, he would incorporate religious references. Court said, and the school district said, you can't do that. You know, when when you're giving your motivational speech, you you can't include religious references. He said, okay. They said, you can't, in the locker room, before or after the games, you can't lead the kids in a prayer. Thank you for getting us through this game without injuries. Can't do that. He said, okay with that. What he started doing was, at the end of games, he would walk out to midfield, and he would bow his head, and he would say a prayer. Right Now, this was at the end of the games while the band was playing and you know the kids were celebrating stuff and and he'd walk out the midfield and he'd bow his head and he'd say a prayer this got attention of a, a rival coach who saw it and thought it was pretty cool and alerted some member of the local media hey do you, do you see coach kennedy he, he's going out there and he, he's saying this prayer and what happened then is some of the kids started joining him and some of the kids from the rival team started joining him. And nobody was forced to do this. Nobody was compelled to do it. But they, they would, they would walk out and he would, you know, he would, he would say a prayer. Right? The school district got wind of this. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but you kind of get the idea. School district got wind of this and said, you can't do that. You, you, you cannot walk out to midfield after the games and, and say a prayer. Um, and he said, well, I, I'm not leading the kids in prayer. Nobody's making anybody come out here. I just want to walk out. I want to bow my head and I want to say a prayer. They said, nope, you, you cannot do that because it is giving the impression that this is a school-sponsored prayer and you can't give that impression. 
All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Today, the, the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 decision based on the conservative liberal liberal split, came and said that the coach is entitled to do this, that this is not state-sponsored prayer, that public employees have the right, under in this context, to, to go out on the field, it's essentially like their, their own time, and they have the right to say to say this prayer. He wasn't compelling. He wasn't coercing anybody. He has the right to do this. And they said, you know, as, as a corollary to that, if the kids decide that they want to go out with them and, and they want to do this on their own, they, they have the right to do that. And this doesn't violate the Establishment Clause and it doesn't create a state religion and the school district needs to step down. And so what they said is he's entitled to have his job back. Now, whether he takes it or not, I don't know. He's subsequently retired. But it does say that under this context, the football coach gets to pray at, at midfield. And if people want to join him, that's fine. And the school district can't say you can't pray. And by the way, this rule was applied specifically to the guy's prayer. If another football coach wanted to walk out on the field at, at after the game and, and look up at the stars and say, oh, those stars are wonderful, they would have let him do it. So this isn't like people were banned from being on the field. This was specifically the act of saying a prayer was banned. 855-616-1620. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but I, I think the court got it exactly right. 855-616-1620, what do you think? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. So that's what the the former high school football coach, at the end of the games, he'd walk out onto the field, he'd say a, a silent prayer, and then he'd, he'd rejoin the team. People started noticing he was doing that. They joined him. The school district said, no, you can't do that. Supreme Court said today, no, there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you're not coercing people, as long as you're not saying, okay, you've you got to come out, you got to pray with me, or as long as you're not saying, hey, <clears throat> the, the one guy who decides he doesn't want to come out on the field and pray with me, you're not going to play. There was no evidence that that was going on. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Tim and Palmyra. Tim, good afternoon. Hey Jeff. Hi, great Tim. show, great topic. This, this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, where does it stop, honestly? Like this is ridiculous. This guy it sounds like he already got scolded once or twice for Yes. Um, some beliefs, right? Yes. And so he has skills and where wants to participate then. I want to talk to her. I'm, I'm sorry, Tim. I'm, I, I apologize because your, your cell phone was kind of breaking up, and and so I, I, I can't. I really couldn't tell what what point you were trying to make. It, if it's yes, he he had been scolded a, a couple times, and they said no, you you can't you can't use religious references in your your motivational speeches. Okay, and then they said because that's promoting a religion, and then they said you know you you can't. You can't like participate in. You can't lead the prayers in the locker room, and I, I guess I guess I under, understand that. But I, I do think at some point in time, just because you're a public employee, you don't you don't lose your right to you, you don't lose your right to have your your religious beliefs. Now you can't proselytize. I, I get that, and you can't punish people for not sharing your belief. But if you're a public employee and and you believe and that that is your relationship and that's your your faith why can't you i guess you know go out at go out at midfield afterwards and just 
bow your head and thank God for the fact that, you know, you got through this and none of the kids got hurt or, or whatever. I, I just, th- this idea that we have to completely and totally separate the idea of, of anybody who works in public life in any sort of capacity and that, that there can be no religious implications at all. I, I don't see it. The, the Establishment Clause, which is it's attached to the First Amendment, I mean, it, I mean, here's what it says. It prohibits the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. And again, the history of this is that we did not want to have a national religion. That's why the, the pilgrims fled, you know, Britain. They, they fled the old world looking for religious freedom because they wanted to be able to worship how they chose. And I think everybody would say, yeah, that, that's good. We don't want the government saying that you, you have to be a Buddhist or you have to be a Catholic or you have to be an Episcopalian or you have to be a Lutheran no, we, we, or you have to be Jewish. We don't want the government saying that. I think we would all agree with that. Somehow over the years, though, that has morphed into this idea of you need this complete separation between, uh, again, the concept of church and state to the point that, you know, if after the football game on his own, the guy decides he wants to go out and and say a prayer and he can't be joined by other people. I guess my question, this is what the Supreme Court raises, and I think they've got it right. How does this, how does him going out, acting in a, essentially a private capacity, the game is over, how does that have the, make the government establish a a religion? How does, and an official religion? And I think, the answer quite candidly is that that it doesn't. At least that's what the court said. And in this particular case, I thought that the court got it right. There needs to be a balancing. And candidly, I think over the years, with this whole idea of separation in church and state, we, we've just tipped it so far that there's this idea of, among some people, that, you know, is, is if anybody gets the religious cooties, then, you know, we, we, we can't have it. And how, how dare you sit and, you know, you say a private prayer or something like that. That's different than forcing the kids um, to pray. Let's talk to Robert. Robert, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Sure. Uh, what What if the coach practiced, like, black magic or was a witch or a Wiccan or whatever? I don't, I'm not into that, but what if, what if he was and he felt that was okay to gather the kids around and you know, uh, give a speech on something that maybe everybody would just be putting their foot down and saying, wait a minute, we don't want this. Well, but of course, what's different is he didn't gather the kids around. If he if he would have said, okay, everybody's got to come out here, and now I'm going to make you say, a, thanks for call, Robert. I mean, he didn't, if, and say, okay, now I'm going to make you all do whatever, you know, Wiccans do after football games or, or whatever, he, but he didn't do that. He, he went out by himself. And, you know, he, he said that this prayer and he was joined voluntarily by the kids and by people who noticed him. That's that I, I think is is fundamentally different than organizing or leading the prayer sessions or things like that. If he had tried to organize a, a, a student prayer, for example, that would be a different story. But that's not what this was. And I don't think it would make any difference whether it was. You know, whether he was a practicing Catholic or whether he was a Wiccan or whether he was a Buddhist or, or whatever, 
the fact that he went out and, and said this prayer to himself and was then joined spontaneously and voluntarily by the, the kids in this case and family members and other people. He, he didn't, just because he was employed as a football coach, he didn't give up his right to practice his religion. And if other people decided, again, after the game or whatever, that they wanted to join in that, they had the right to do it. In any event, I think the Supreme Court got it right. I, I think what you're going to see is more of these kind of cases trying to better define the limits of just because it's a public setting, does that mean that you can't have any references to religion at all? To me, it, it's going to depend on is is there coercion? You know, nobody can be forced to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Nobody should be forced to stand up and say, you know, the, the prayer. But does that mean that you can't have it as at all as a part of a public event? And I think the answer to that is probably going to be no. One of our texters says, wait until a Muslim coach drags out a prayer rug to the 50-yard line. Right-wing heads will be exploding. Far right-wing heads will be exploding. And actually, my response was, candidly, if that had happened, I doubt the school district would have intervened in the first place in that scenario. Now, you know, we'll we'll never know. But I, I, I do think because... And, of course, he didn't drag out a prayer mat or anything like this. This was he goes out, he bears, he, he bows his head and says a semi-silent prayer. I, I think um, Christians make easier targets in, in this regard. And I do wonder, again, how the school district in that scenario, what if this was a Muslim who put the prayer rug there? Would they have dared intervene? And I, I kind of doubt that. I, again, I think the Supreme Court got this right. I think what you have to do is there has to be a balancing between j- just because you are a public employee doesn't mean that you give up rights to practice your religion. And, and, and how, again, how do you define this and how do you draw the lines? And that's not to me what the Establishment Clause has ever been about. But, you know, there'll be more cases like this coming up soon. So I have a story. Um, it was, I think, last Tuesday. It must have been last Tuesday night. We had a, um, our, our, our local, I live in a condo, and our condo association had its annual meeting, and it was like 6 o'clock, and I'm on the board, so I had to be there about 5.30. And my lovely and charming wife, she's always very interested in, number one, making sure that I eat, number two, making sure that I don't eat crap. <laughs> That's kind of it. So, you know, she, she makes... She makes dinner a lot of times, and it's I, I'm just the beneficiary of this. She's a wonderful cook. But because we had to be somewhere early and she had to do something in the afternoon, that just wasn't working out. So she says, okay, tell you what, we're going to make an exception here. I, I will, before we go, why don't I stop by, there, there's a Cousins uh, submarine sandwich place kind of right by where we live. And I like Cousins. So she says, I'll, I'll stop by Cousins. I'll get you a you, I'll get you that, that special sandwich that you like. I'll get the cousin special. I'll bring it home. You can have that and some potato chips, and we'll, you know, no, it, I know it's not the perfect meal, but you like that. We'll go from there. I said, great. So she come, she calls me, and she says, um, a little while, and she says, uh, that didn't work out very well because I, I pulled into the, the cousins that we go to, and they were closed. They had a big sign up on the door saying, we're sorry, we're closed. We cannot find help. Now, this is a Cousins that, I mean, typically, when, whenever I would go in there, they would, and I don't think they're closed permanently, they were just closed on, on Tuesday afternoon because they, they couldn't find help. You know, and they always had high school kids and stuff they are working there, but they, they could not find help. So they had no choice but to close their door. So, you know, we moved on to whatever our plan B was. But this is this is not an uncommon story. I was just looking back over 
some of the the different restaurants that have closed in, in just you know the the last couple months. For example, there was a Marty's Pizza in Brookfield, which had been there for sixty five years, and you know they they closed because they, their Delafield store is still open. But the one in Brookfield, they closed. Remember that their story was we we just we couldn't find help. And, you know, the, the owners and stuff were, there's only so many hours that you could work, but we couldn't get people to come in and, and work. And that's, that's a story here. I, when people would ask me what I felt personally was the best place to get a steak in Milwaukee, I would always say that the Jackson Grill on, on, on West Mitchell Street. It was just an institution. And, you know, they closed this year. Now there are a couple other things going on. The co-founder, um, Pat, who was the, the chef, he, he had passed away. But, you know, they said, you know, it was the, the you know, um, Heidi, who was uh, Jimmy's wife, did, they just never reopened because they said, look, here's the deal. You know, prices are going through the roof, but we, we have difficulty finding workers. So, you know, we, we'd rather quit while we're ahead. Now, the story today is Maria's Pizza um, in the southwest side. You know, they're closing, and they're like, I think, what they're one of Milwaukee's oldest continually operating pizzerias. And, you know, they're not giving all the reasons for it, but, but you get the idea when they're, they're talking about it. They're talking about how, you know, after the pandemic, they closed down, and now it's just working really, really long hours, and they're trying to decide that, okay, well, maybe there's more to life than this, and so they're looking at closing. And the list, you know, goes on and on and on. I'm just looking at the different restaurants, and, and while Difficulty in attracting help isn't the only reason why a lot of these long-term restaurants are closing. You know, inflation, you know, the impact of the pandemic, all this stuff. So there's all sorts of factors that are going on, and I appreciate that. But there's no question the inability to find workers is definitely one of the factors that are causing a lot of these places to just say, look, we, we can't keep the doors open anymore. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I have a I have a why question, which is why why is this happening? Um, obviously, like working working in the restaurant business is a it's a tough way to make a living. Okay, there, there's no there's no question about it. And some of the jobs it's hard work. And some of the jobs aren't necessarily that glamorous if you're washing the dishes or you're bussing the tables. And, you know, being a server is is very, very stressful. I, I get all that. But this is a relatively new phenomena that we have that these restaurants and, w- again, whether it's, you know, fine dining um, or whether it's the, the, the pizza places or whether it's the, the Cousin's Submarine Store or whatever, it's a relatively new phenomena that they can't find help. I was talking about this with someone else, and everybody's got anecdotal stories. They were telling me, yeah, I went to this one place um, and the, the, on a Monday night. I always used to go on Monday nights. Uh, they had to sign up closed Monday and Tuesdays because they can't find help. 855-616-1620. Why is this happening now? And is this going to be the new normal? Why is it that you you can't get the high school kids or the college kids back on vacation, you know, to work at these jobs? Why is it that for you know people they're they're not they're not making these choices? Is it 
that the work is too hard? Is it that they'd rather work at a Home Depot? 855-616-1620. And what does this say for the future of restaurants, for those of us who love to dine out? 855-616-1620. I've got some thoughts, but I'm curious as to what you think is going on. Stick around. Look, I, I think when you when you see all these restaurants that are, are closing, um, there, there's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I, I understand some of it's because they, they fell behind during the pandemic and they can't catch up. Sometimes it's just people who maybe they closed temporarily during the pandemic and the owners decided life is short and, and, and maybe we just don't want to keep doing this. Working in a restaurant is hard. There, there's no question about it. And then you've got all this inflation that's going on. You know, people's pocketbooks are stretched. And one of the things they cut back on is when you're paying $5 gas, maybe it's you used to go out to dinner three times a week. Now you're going out once or or not at all. So there's all those factors. But there's no question. One of the things that's driving some of these restaurant closures is the fact that they cannot get help. And, of course, it's not just um, restaurants. Uh, Ken from Heartland says, gee, the local Walgreens on Walgreens on Grandview Boulevard in Waukesha has closed that location several times in the past month because of the inability to get staff to get that location open. Um, I have friends who own restaurants, ranging from fast food restaurants to sit-down places, and they'll tell you that that's the number one problem is getting people who are willing to work at these places. And in many cases, they they they, they pay well. It's not like it's it's starvation wages, but the the folks who used to come in the door through the door looking for jobs, they're not there anymore. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Leonard. Uh, Leonard, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, I've worked in employment. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead. I've worked in employment for several years. And what we're seeing, you know, my opinion was that there were too many McDonald's, too many Burger Kings. When, uh, When you wanted, as a young person, to get your first job, you took the Burger King job because it was available more than something maybe working at Macy's or mm-hmm. a jewelry store or something that was more glamorous. There were plenty of those jobs because they had enough workers to work them. Now younger people aren't choosing to take those jobs. There are more IT opportunities. There are, oh, the, the biggest one is the uh, Uber and the uh, other other uh, chains that allow you to work the number of hours you want, and and you can go home and punch out mm-hmm. anytime you want to. That option has really impacted the opportunity for a lot of people. So you've got a lot of young people who are just also financially uh, better off, and mm-hmm. they don't have to take a lot of those jobs as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you know we had too many restaurants. Uh, too many burgers, too many of these mom and pops that were really just getting by with the, with the workers that they had when they lost those, it really showed how volatile, uh, their, uh, restaurants were. And how vulnerable they were. No, thanks for calling. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, people, I mean, they're, the, the restaurant dynamics are, it, it, it's very difficult to make a go of it because restaurants come into favor and out of favor. I mean, think about how many people, you know, you had your favorite restaurant and you'd go there maybe twice a week for, you know, X amount of time. And then you kind of got bored with that place and you went somewhere else. I mean, so it, it's a very difficult dynamic. But if you do talk to even these successful restaurants, that's what, what they're going to tell you is it's just it is a struggle to get and to keep help. 
Um, and the new people that were walking through the door, well, they don't see them anymore. Here's a text, Jeff. I think besides being busy with after-school activities, sports, etc., parents don't seem to be as insistent on their kids getting a job. I had to get a job to afford some of the extras I wanted. My parents did not pay for any frivolous, their words, not mind, mind things. I, I think that that's a factor as well. I think the other thing that... Um, I think the other thing that's kind of going on there is the fact that you have, uh, because of during the pandemic, we we paid a lot of people not to work. We paid a lot of people we, with whether it's extra unemployment or whether it's like we're the rent assistance or we're going to put a we're going to put a moratorium on having to pay back student loans, etc. So the pressure of having to go out and work was a lot less. And I think, you know, right now, because it is sort of a buyer's market when it comes to people who are looking for jobs, because so many businesses are in that problem, a lot of people are deciding they don't necessarily want to, you know, work in the restaurants. Kat in Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? Um, I would be inclined to agree with you on the aspect of uh, kids and the things that they do these days, but you also have to take into consideration there's corporations that have popped up like Amazon. I just got done doing a two-year stint with them, and when they're willing to hire people to drive a van on their own schedule mm-hmm. for 8 to 10 hours a day for $18, $20 an hour, these low-end jobs really don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, And I worked for Subway restaurants for eight and a half years. I left them for just that lack of pay, you know, the kids aren't willing to come in and work for eight twenty-five an hour when they can go out and find a painting job that's going to pay them $13 an hour. Or now, you know, you've got McDonald's and places getting so desperate, they're offering 11 15 $16 right. an hour to get people in the door, and they can't. Yeah, it, it's, the it, pandemic I, certainly did not help. Unemployment rates, you know, what people were making on unemployment was more than they were making going to work. Yeah, I have Which a I have a friend. I've, I, I mean, I've told this story. I have a friend who owns several. I mean, dozens and dozens of of a particular fast food restaurant uh, franchise. And you know, whenever we talk, he'll tell me that that continues to be their biggest problem is is paying the help. And whenever you know, so the, like in the discussion about minimum wage is completely and totally academic because they can't pay, they can't get people to come in. They can't get people to come in offering ten, eleven, twelve dollars an hour, much less if they were paying minimum wage. Or or if they get people to come in, they can't get them to come back the second day or the second week. It it's a real struggle. And I, I, I think a lot more of these restaurants are going to end up closing. Well, that's my that was my experience with Subway. Literally, only one of the five Subway restaurants I worked for is still open, and it was the same thing. I would hire people on a base rate and give them nine dollars an hour, and told them if they made it sixty days, they would get eleven dollars an hour, and they couldn't make it first through the first two weeks. They just didn't want to do the work. They didn't want to deal with the people. Right. And they felt it was just too hard. Our kids are being a little too spoiled these days. Yeah. You know, interesting. Now, thank, thanks for call, Kat. Thanks for the perspective. You know, it's, it is it is interesting, like the, the perspective both our first callers to made as well, is, first of all, there are all the choices that are out there, but also, I mean, you do have the, the gig economy. And, that I mean, I don't know about you, but... I and and I'm I am somewhat guilty of this because I I regularly shop on Amazon and my wife kind of jokingly refers to it oh you got the latest Christmas present 
You know, and, and we have, I, I mean, there, there's not a day goes by that I don't see five or six, whether it's Amazon or UPS or FedEx or, or whatever, you know, delivery trucks or vans or whatever, you know, in, in our neighborhood. And I, I think that that's true. You've got this gig economy that's there, and there's people probably who are, are driving and they're, they're, they're setting their own hours more than if you work at like that fast food place or the restaurant in general where you're told, okay, you've got to be here. I need you here at four o'clock and you've got to stay till 11 o'clock and you're going to bust tables or you're going to wash dishes. You're going to do those other things. It's definitely a challenge. Adam, Adam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I, I agree with what everybody said so far and, you know, I, I think I told you, Screener, I'm a culinary instructor, and, you know, most of the kids coming to school to do this as a career, they actually don't, most of them don't want to go into the restaurants and work. They find other avenues where they can use their culinary skills, and it's for the same reasons everybody else is saying, and that's you don't get paid enough. you got to work every holiday, every weekend. You can't be with your family. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard work, um, but if you love it, you still want to do it, but... They're just going to go for the, the different avenues in the industry rather than the restaurants. And it's hard to make a restaurant go, so it's you got to feel for the people that own them, too, because oh, yeah. they, they probably can't really pay much more. So, um, yeah, it's a I, it's very interesting to see where it's all going to go. And the pandemic, I think it was going that way, but the pandemic really just pushed it over the edge. Yeah, I agree. No, th- thanks for calling. Matter of fact, I was talking to the owner of, of one of the, places we patronize and you know we I, I was asking her how things were going and stuff like that and you know and I, I said oh you haven't raised your prices for all she said, well unfortunately that that's coming because yes you have to pay the the workers more but also your food costs are going up I and mean, we all know that I mean you go to the grocery store and you 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 want to buy a certain quality steak or whatever and you see how much that's that cost is increased and you know it's the same thing that's true for the restaurants and all and they end up passing it on and it's not of course just restaurants uh, Jeff, we went to a strawberry farm in Kenosha. Needed eight quarts for a strawberry fest party. You could pick your own, but none were pre-picked. They apologized, said they couldn't get pickers. In the past, it used to be a good job for young teenagers. Daytime work for a few weeks in the summer. Um, only a few cars in the lot the day that I was there, so I hope their berries don't go to waste. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that's that's the deal. They're, they're used to finding this, and they they can't... They, they can't get the people that are going to come in. Jeff, the Mamma Mia's in Germantown, which is a restaurant that I have patronized from time to time. I used to love the garlic bread at Mamma Mia's, and I, I think the one in Germantown is the only one that's still left open. It says the Mamma Mia's in Germantown is now closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, again, because they, they, can't, they can't get the help. And this is like a recurring thing. I, I don't have an answer for it. I think actually our last caller was on to something. I think a lot of the restaurants were, were kind of fragile to begin with. And then you have the government ordered shutdowns as a result of COVID. And, you know, people just ended up getting laid off and the restaurants falling farther behind and things like that. And I, I think, I think that we're going to, we're just starting to see the shakeout. I think that you're going to see a lot more of your favorite places that end up, especially if they've been owned by like a family for years and years. I think more and more of them are probably going to say, Hey, it's, it's just life is short. It's time to move on. That's, that's not a good thing. It is the reality though. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Quick reminder, um, Summerfest, which is over three weekends, Thursday through Saturday, uh, this week and then next week as well. I'll be back there noon until 3, both Thursday and Friday. We had a great time last Friday and looking forward to getting down to the lakefront. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. A couple of housekeeping matters. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. I have a link to a very, very interesting at least in my opinion, story that's out by um, Mike Nichols, who used to be a reporter for the local newspaper, and now he works for the uh, the you know, Badger Institute. But it, it's it's an interesting piece on on Act Ten. For those of you who might be new to the area, Act Ten was a provision that was introduced by Governor Scott Walker when he first took over in 2011 that led to all this consternation. It led to protests. It led to takeovers at the Capitol. It led to the Democrats in the state Senate fleeing the state in an effort to try to stop this from from being passed. And, And ultimately, it all failed. And Republican leaders went through what I think was one of the most pivotal things in the history of the state in at least the last 10 or 11 years with regard to reigning in public spending. And what Act 10 did in a nutshell was it severely limited the um, collective bargaining rights of public employees. One of the very, and, and people are still torn to this day whether Act 10 was great or whether Act 10 was horrible. I will say that for all the, the doomsayers, the people who just predicted, oh, this is going to devastate public employment in this state and all, that has not turned out to be the case. But one of the most, I, I think, dramatic and positive effects, at least in my opinion this has had, is Act 10 which limited the rights of collective bargaining, has had the effect of saving taxpayers millions and millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in unnecessary expenditures that were made to public health plans. See, here's here's what happened. WEA Trust, which has just um, recently indicating that it's going out of the health insurance business. WEA Trust was something that was formed back in the 1970s, and it was created by the teachers' union, WEAC. Um, They created this insurance trust in 1970. And then what the teachers' union would do when it would sit down with collective bargaining is as part of the agreement they would force the school districts to get their insurance through the WEA trust. So it, that was the deal. It was like, okay, well, if, if you want us to, if you want us to collectively bargain and you want to have a contract, you have to use our insurance carrier of choice. And there really, you know, wasn't, you know, wasn't too much option that was around with that. So. They'd force the school boards to go with the WEA trust. Well, the WEA trust, I mean, quite candidly, uh, that wasn't the best deal for for the taxpayers. And what and we they, they overpaid for what they got. And, but it was this monopoly that, okay, your teacher union says you've got to use our insurance carrier. So, I mean, Mike Nichols is reporting this, that that first year after Act 10 went into effect, what ended up happening is 
Um, the WEA Trust lost about a third of its business in just the first year. Uh, some districts saved millions of dollars in the first year alone. Appleton reportedly saved over $3 million per year by renegotiating its trust contract. Menominee Falls reportedly saved approximately $2 million per year as a result of switching to to Humana, like going to a, a different source. So the bottom line was this was kind of the free market. Once you got out from under the union, the teachers union, being able to force the school districts to use their hand-picked kind of captive insurance agency, insurance provider, the school districts could go out, they could negotiate, they could get competitive bids, just like you would do. I mean, if you're, all right, if, if you're looking for your homeowner's insurance, all right, then my chances are that, you know, you're going to call your insurance agent. You're going to say, okay, this is what I need, and, and, and where should I be? Okay, Get me bids. Find out if I go with West Bend, what would that be? If I go with, you know, Aetna, if I go whatever, you know, you're, you're going to go around and you're going to seek a, a competitive sort of bid, and you're going to find the one where you think the service is going to be the best and cost is going to be a factor. Well, you know, in the public health sector, when it came to these unions, they, school districts really didn't have that ability. Now they they do, and they've been voting with their feet and their pocketbooks, and the follow-up story is that um, WEA Trust is now apparently getting out of the health insurance business by the end of the year. So they weren't able to compete in the free market. What does that tell you? Act 10 gave the school districts the ability to compete, the ability to go out and competitively price their health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And once once they were able to go out in the free market, they were able to provide quality coverage to their employees, and at the same time, they were able to save millions and millions of dollars. So that's one of the untold stories of Act 10, and it's it's a good one. All right, let us switch gears. We've talked in this in the past in this program about what they call shrinkflation. We we all we all see prices going up. We all see, hey, I drove by the gas station today and the it's, gas is five dollars and twenty cents a gallon down a little bit now. But you get the point. We we see the rising prices. We all know you go to the grocery store and you see that that package of bacon that used to be four bucks and now it's eight bucks or or, or whatever. You see that type of inflation. But there's also what they call shrinkflation, which is companies that increase their prices, but also decrease the quantity. And we, we did a segment on this maybe two or three weeks ago, like Gatorade. They, they used to have Gatorade would come in 32-ounce bottles. Well, it doesn't come in 32-ounce bottles anymore. It comes in 28-ounce in bottles. And they, they charge the same price or maybe a little bit more. But the hope is that you don't notice that you're getting four ounces less. And you're seeing shrinkflation in all sorts of all sorts of things. You know, the package that used to be 16 ounces is now 14 ounces or, or whatever. You, you get the idea. They're cutting back. Prices continue to go up, but also the manufacturers, the providers are giving you less. And a lot of people don't notice that less. Well, there's a story in the New York Post that caught my attention. I wonder if it's catching yours. Shrinkflation as it comes to alcohol. Story was apparently a, a number of restaurants all across the country. What they're doing is they're cutting down the amount of alcohol they give you. Now, this story is all about wine. The, the traditional 
regular pour glass of wine is is six ounces right that that's it but it's it's kind of tough to to know exactly you know you get your glass whether it's six ounces or whether it's six and a half ounces or five and a half ounces or whatever but they, they went around to all these different you know, bars and restaurants and they ordered wine and what they found that a lot of them was what used to be a six ounce pour had now become in some cases a five ounce pour and in other cases it even become a four ounce pour in other words you, you're getting that that shrinkflation you're not getting as much as you used to and you know you, you, you might think okay well what difference does a, does an ounce of wine make well an ounce or two ounces of wine per glass over you know several bottles of wine that can that can save the restaurant or make the restaurant a bunch more money I've been trying to notice that as, as I go out, whether it's gl- glasses of wine where the, the pours are smaller or are the beers, the, the glasses of beer not as much, or is there less alcohol that's in the drinks? Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Shrinkflation when it comes to booze. Have you noticed that? Is that starting to hit around here? 855-616-1620. It certainly is hitting in a big place in other locations. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. They call it shrinkflation, and we've talked about this before. It hits, you see it hitting in a lot of things at the grocery store where the it used to be you get 16 ounces now you get 12 ounces it used to be you get 32 ounces now you get 28 ounces it's also apparently migrating its way into restaurants and bars where the you know the the traditional okay if traditionally the the tap beer would be 16 ounces you know the traditional pint well now they're instructed to pour you're going to get 14 ounces it's really uh, in, in a number of places it's playing out with wine where there's a huge markup and you know maybe the, the standard pour would be five or six ounces now that might be four or four and a half Jeff I bought a package of Thomas English muffins this weekend and was stunned they looked like silver dollars instead of the usual size I don't know if this just happened but it was an incredible shock to me that this went on. Jeff, my wife thought she was buying a pound of bacon last week. Um, Sunday, when she made the bacon for breakfast, she discovered it wasn't 16 ounces. It was only 12 ounces. Bacon was being rationed yesterday. That's from Dick and Shauna. Yeah, th- those are the things that are going on. And, and I think you're now, at least in some places, in an effort to, I don't know, um, increase the profit margins, maintain the profit margins or whatever, you're, you're seeing people being squeezed a little bit and and pores changing around. Gianni and Montello, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, Jeff. Uh, great topic. Hey, listen, we've all uh, seen shrinkflation in our grocery stores. Um, I am in the craft uh, beer business in Wisconsin, and I would never think Never think of reducing our products below our quarter barrels or our uh, 12, you know, mm-hmm. 355 milliliters or 12 ounce packaging. Um, so I, I think that this is just downright duplicity uh, among many of the uh, suppliers of our grocery stores and um, mm-hmm. our restaurants these days. And the restaurants can do what they want. We we can't serve over the bar and that, but um, I, I think it's outright duplicity and it's gouging. Well, I mean, th- I guess it, it it is if it. Thanks for calling, Gianna. I guess it it is if it's if it's hidden. Um, and that that that's one of the things. I mean, if if you go in, if okay, so like yesterday afternoon, we get done play with go, playing golf, we go to the you know typical bar that we go to, and I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll have a glass of 
I'll have a glass of beer. Well, you, you know, if you now if they're serving the beer in the same sort of glass as you always did, you could tell okay, it's a pint glass, and normally they fill it up. And if they only fill it up ninety percent of the way, you can say okay, why, why is this going on? It, it's tougher to tell though when you know you're you're not necessarily a regular, and you're not used to you know what is the standard pour of wine at this restaurant or whatever. But I, I think and there's there's nothing wrong with doing that, I guess, as long as as long as people aren't being deceived. Um, but it is something to pay attention to because, again, I, I'm not saying the bartenders, I'm not saying the bar owners, the restaurant owners are, are bad guys, but it, it's something that you're starting to see happen more and more. Portions being served, smaller portions, and that's obviously one of the things that's going to play out with alcohol as well. It's also something, I think, particularly in the area of wines, that you notice you know, more and more because you're used to what a certain glass of wine is, and now, hey, this just seems like a, a lot seems like a lot less wine. Now, it, it may be that some people think, oh, that's, that's a good thing. You don't want to drink as much, but chances are, you know, maybe you're just going to order that extra glass of wine and it's going to cost you more. And there's nothing wrong with this, again, as long as it's disclosed. But be aware that shrinkflation is a reality and it doesn't just happen on the items that you buy, you know, in the grocery store. It happens all over. And I candidly don't think it's going to change in the near future. I know a lot of the civic leaders have been out saying, okay, we, we need to get a handle on violence and things of the like, and, and I appreciate the sentiment. Talk isn't working, though. This is, you know, another weekend, and another just incredible amount of violence. Um, let's see. Where, let's, that's Saturday morning. Police say four homes and three cars were hit by bullets on the city's south side early Saturday morning. It happened near 17th and Scott around 1245 a.m. So this is Friday night, Saturday morning. Get this. There were over 100 bullet casings at the scene. 100 bullet cases at at the scene. Police say four homes and three cars were hit by bullets. I mean, somebody just opens fire. It is a stone-cold miracle that there weren't anybody injured, but 100 bullets at the scene, bullet casings at the scene. Then you have police investigating a double fatal shooting that happened at 37th and Roberts, 11.15 p.m. on Friday, June 24th. 28-year-old man, 39-year-old man, both from Milwaukee, pronounced dead at the scene. Investigation is ongoing. Then you have Milwaukee man fatally shot Sunday afternoon near 95th and Brown Deer Road, 1.30 in the afternoon. No arrests have been made. And let's see, a man killed near Green Bay and Silver Spring. Police are investigating a fatal shooting that happened near Green Bay and Silver Spring shortly after 10 p.m. on Saturday, June 25th. 25-year-old man sustained, succumbed to his injuries. The investigation is ongoing and police continue to seek suspects. Bottom line of all this is this: the, the degree of violent crime this summer is just at an absolutely unprecedented level, and I, and I understand everybody is frustrated by this. Not the least of which are the people who live in these communities that are being plagued by this. I mean, can you imagine living in a neighborhood where, gee, what's that noise? Hey, hit the ground because there's a 100 bullets that are being shot into houses and cars. Can you imagine living in a war zone like that? And unfortunately, more and more of our communities have become exactly those types 
of war zones as the number of homicides just absolutely skyrockets. And I guess the, the frustration that I have, and I know I talk about this repeatedly, is we, we get lip service for a lot of things. Oh, you know, we, we, we need fewer guns on the street. Well, we need fewer guns in the hands of people who are going to shoot up the, the communities. The, yes, that, that's it. And if you've got methods of getting guns out of the hands of people who are going to shoot up the, these neighborhoods or shoot each other in arguments, I, I'm all in favor of that. And I'm, I'm certainly willing to have that conversation. But short term, and this is, again, my challenge to the media when they cover these stories, of the people when they catch the shooters – and unfortunately, there's so many shootings nowadays, their, their closure rate for the police department is nowhere near what it used to be. And that's partly just because so many more people are being shot and murdered on, on the streets of Milwaukee. But my challenge is always to the media. When they catch the people that are allegedly responsible for this, what what is their background? Were they, you know, was this a first offense or, you know, had they had a whole series of offenses? And my prediction is about three quarters of the time you're going to find that these are people who had a history of violent crimes or at least progressively more serious crimes in the first place who probably should have been behind bars or probably should have been out of circulation, but they're out on the streets to engage in these shoot 'em ups and, and that's the real challenge, that the idea of not putting dangerous people away doesn't help doesn't help them and it doesn't help the rest of us hey, if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 i just tweeted out a, an interesting story from the associated press it's I, I i call it the biden effect um and it's it's bad news for democrats in november elections if this holds true in wisconsin you do not need to register by party you, you know, you can they don't ask, are you Republican or a Democrat? And and as a result, for example, in the August primaries, Republicans can vote in the Republican primary or if they choose, they can vote in, in the Democrat primary. You just can't switch back and forth. It's led to this really interesting phenomena in a couple of states. You have you have the Democrats who are putting millions of dollars into races trying to elect the trying to have the Republican win the primary who they think is least electable. Uh, There was a big story in the New York Times over the weekend about something that's happening in in Chicago. And in in Chicago, there are in in Illinois, that is there. There are two candidates, two major candidates running for the Republican nomination for, for governor. And one of them is a more, I'm going to call, mainstream sort of candidate, the mayor of, of a small community outside of Chicago. The other candidate is um, a much more conservative guy who's running from, from outstate. The conventional wisdom is the, the, the more traditional candidate – um, who's, again, I, I would describe as a, a more moderate, a conservative, but a moderate Republican. The fear is that the Democrats have is that he is a much more like he's a much he's a much stronger challenger to the Democrat governor of Illinois than the man, the guy's more of a fringe sort of player. So I, I might I mean, I think the number I don't have the story in front of me right at the moment, but the number is apparently like the Democrats are, are putting tens of millions of dollars in advertising, attacking the more moderate candidate and supporting 
the more, I'm going to use the phrase extreme, that's just for the sake of differentiating, the more extreme candidate because they, they want to try to get the more extreme candidate elected. So, I mean, you want to talk about a, a really dangerous sort of strategy. I mean, if, if this is it, it's like, well, you know, we, we're going to try to play in the other party's elections, and, and we think that by, by doing this, we can help our guy get in. Well, it, you know, you got to be careful. Because if you spend tens of millions of dollars trying to elect who you think is the most more unelectable candidate, and that person then goes on to win the general election, then I mean you really got to be accountable, I think, to your to your your donor base and things like that. But this is happening all over the country in some of these open primaries where you have the Democrats that have decided we're going to try to find the more conservative quote out of the mainstream candidate. We're going to try to push him or her. We're going to try to get them elected. We're going to spend all this money, and then we figure it'll be easier to beat him in the general election. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe not. But here's the, here's the story that I actually tweeted out. The There are a number of states where you have to register as either a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't mean that you have to vote Republican or vote Democrat, but it means that you have to register. And apparently, over the last year, this is kind of the Biden effect, more than one million voters across 43 states have switched from being a Democrat to being a a Republican. Um, and the story says this this phenomena is playing out in virtually every region of the country, Democratic states, Republican states, cities and small towns. But it says that the shift is is no more nowhere is it more pronounced than in the suburbs where um, well educated swing voters, you know, turned against Donald Trump in recent years, in the 2018 and the 2020 elections, now they appear to be swinging back. And the story says over the last year, far more people are switching to the Republicans across suburban counties from Denver to Atlanta, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland, and then also in several middle-sized cities as well. So this is one of the phenomena. Now, obviously, Democrats are going to hope that the, the Supreme Court issue with Roe versus Wade might stop that or might cause people to swing back. As I've said before, I don't really think that that's I don't think that's going to be the case, because I think I think while people have opinions on abortion, there's maybe 15 percent of people on the the right and 15 percent of the people on the left. And the, uh, abortion is their one issue. You know, we we. You know, we insist on people being pro-life. That's the slate we're going to vote. Abortion is our driving issue. Or people other ways, well, I can't believe they reverse Roe versus Wade. This, you know, we, we've got to go back to abortion on demand. That's, I think, 15% on both sides. The vast majority of people, I think that's 70%. They might have an opinion one way or the other on abortion, but it's not It's not their voting. It's not going to be what's going to drive them to, to cast their ballot. Could be wrong, but I, I don't. I don't think I am. I think that's kind of the way this all breaks down. But, you know, one of the trends is people, particularly in the suburbs, who previously had registered as Democrats, now registering as Republicans. And I, I think it's because of crime. I think it's because of inflation. I think it's a rejection of some of the really, really progressive policies that are out there. And I think you're going to see it come into play in November. Okay, when we come back, nobody's riding. Did anybody notice? So very glad to have you with us. Last week, 
Now, I always, it's one of the things I, I really enjoy about Twitter is you kind of put stuff up there and then you get all this, this feedback. And there's a lot of the, the so-called haters that are out there. And that, that's fine. As long as they're, you know, reading and reacting, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But I, I, I posted about a story was out there. The headline is the hop returns to full service. And, and the story was, you know, believe it or not, the hop, which is, of course, the, the downtown trolley system, it, it has not been run. Um, as of up until last week, it had not been run as planned for any full calendar month this in, entire year. And, you know, that actually since like December 27th, you know, they, they've since last December, they've had a, a variety of reasons why the streetcars weren't running. In early April, a series of inoperable jacks in the streetcar maintenance facility caused a cascading series of issues that cut service frequency and hours. Three of the system's five 40-ton vehicles needed routine wheel maintenance, but without the jacks, the vehicles could not be repaired. The situation got dire enough that at various points, only one vehicle was available, causing service to be available only once every four 40 minutes. Now, service is supposed to be available every every 15 minutes. Um, my tweet said, the hop returns to full service. Thank goodness our local nightmare is over. Seriously, did anybody really notice that this multi-million dollar money pit wasn't at full service over the last, you know, six months? And whenever I have this conversation, I always think back to conversations I have with a number of friends and acquaintances of mine who are in downtown on a regular basis. And the the overall things that you hear about the hop are, first of all, it, it is a pain to, to drive around town on the occasions when the hop is, is operating because you end up stuck at intersections and things like that. Secondly, what I hear constantly is the fact that it is essentially an air trolley, that, you know, there it is, I don't want to say always empty, but... It, it's pretty much always empty. And, you know, I'll have some of my friends, that, and again, it's anecdotal, they'll tell stories about how they'll be sitting down, they'll be having lunch, and, you know, during the course of, you know, an hour lunch, you'll see the the vehicle come by two or three times, maybe more, and how, you know, there's just never anybody in it. So one of the things that has always frustrated me is this idea that even if it doesn't work, we should applaud it. And because it's a noble idea, we should just pretend. It's kind of like the emperor has no clothes, you know, where the the king is riding down the street and he's naked and everybody's like applauding. Oh, this is just great. You know, you look great. Um, and then till this look, till a little kid stands up and says he's naked. You know, and it, and it just bursts the whole illusion. To me, the hop has always been sort of like that this idea and it was interesting because I, I posted this and I, I got all these these comments particularly from like like downtown liberals who were talking about oh you don't understand this 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 is just a, a tremendous investment and it doesn't matter that nobody rides it it's just good to to have this here because property values along the routes have have gone up okay well you know, you, you could have done all sorts of things to inspire property values along the route. And if you were going to spend, you know, $50 million or $100 million to do something, is that really the best use of this? Or you'll have people who will say, well, I, I ride it. 
I, I mean, I ride it all the time, to which you want to say, well, that's interesting. It, it doesn't really go anywhere. And you could walk faster. You could Uber faster. You could probably take a rubber trial tire trolley and, and get there faster. And, and yes, it's. I get it. I understand that it's sort of nice that if you live on the east side and you want to go bar hopping and you don't mind walking a few blocks off of the route, it, it's a nice sort of thing. But basically the argument I hear a lot of times with the hop is simply, oh, well, it's a good thing. You know, it, it's this is this is the new urbanism. This is something that makes downtown vibrant and it's going to attract all sorts of people there to which you say, really, that this is what's going to attract people that are there. It is a fixed cost right now. And that that's fine. And right now the problem is the city of Milwaukee, it costs them, I think, what, a couple million dollars that comes out of, of revenue that otherwise would be spent on doing other things like improving the roads or whatever. It costs a couple million dollars to operate the, the hop and to run it for free. And the reason they, they run it for free is because if they charge people 50 cents or a buck, they know that the numbers would crater even more. So, I mean, that's just kind of the reality. It's there. I appreciate that the hop is there. I appreciate also the reality that very, very few people ride it other than, you know, maybe the numbers are going to be up this week because you've got, you know, Summerfest and and maybe people will use it as an alternative way to, to get down to Summerfest. And that's all well and good. But that's not the real question. The hop exists right now. Yes, it, it takes people to the Lower East Side. If you want to go to the bus station, it'll it'll take you down to the bus station, so you don't have to worry about parking there. And and that's a nice thing. But that's that's a specialty. The real issue is going to be where do we go from here? And there are people in the community who think that it would be a good idea. Well, the reason nobody rides the hop is it doesn't go anywhere. So what we need to do is we need to take a quarter, you know, $250 million more or $500 million more, and we need to expand it. We need to run it down the south side. We need to run it past Fiserv and all those things because then more people will ride it. That's I appreciate this is one of the things that, you know, sounds real good from the urban planners and we want to have this viable sort of thing and stuff like that. But the truth is the population density in the city of Milwaukee and the ease of getting around otherwise, including cars and Ubers and stuff, just doesn't justify that. So I, I was again, I was kind of amused to see like this huge response and how how dare anybody, especially somebody who lives in the suburbs, how dare you, you know, mock the fact that we've got these air trolleys that are driving around and don't you realize we need more of those and these are the wave of the future. And then there's that attitude and then there's the reality that you have to make decisions. And the decision to invest $100 million to build fixed, um, a fixed-track streetcar was one of the dumbest decisions this community has made in a long, long time. If you want to move people around the city, the thing that always made sense was to add rubber-tired trolleys. So, all right, so you've got the Republican National Committee at Fi- Convention at Fiserv. You add the trolleys, you add the routes, you shuttle people around. You've got Summerfest that's going on, so it's busy for three weeks. You put on the rubber-tired trolleys, you su- shuffle people around, you get them down there, but you don't necessarily run this thing when nobody's downtown or nobody's going anywhere downtown that would have made sense 
unfortunately, we don't operate nowadays on things that make sense. We operate on, well, this feels good, or this looks good, or this worked really well in a community where there's not a lot of common characteristics to Milwaukee. So next time somebody comes around and says, let's spend $500, $500 million more to try to take these trolleys that nobody ride and extend them somewhere else, just remember, nobody's riding them in the first place. They could go out of service, and nobody would notice that they went out of service. And, yes, we can't afford it.